So that brings us to chapter 18, verse 19. Then Ahai Maaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and give the king the good news that Yahweh has vindicated him before his enemies. But Job said to him, You will not be the bearer of good news today. You will bear the news some other day, but not today, for the king's son is dead. Remember God left Zadok, the high priest, behind in Jerusalem to become like a intelligence network. And he had given the command to Zadok's son to then run the message from Zadok in Jerusalem to David out there in the battlefield and tell him what's going on. So Ahai Maaz, the son of Zadok, says, I want to tell David the good news. And Job basically says, you're not going to tell him this. David's son is dead. The implication is this may not be interpreted by David well. This definitely is not going to be interpreted by David as good news. There's a very bittersweet element here. To a certain extent, the rebellion is completely over with, the civil war is completely over with, and David can return to the throne. That would be a huge cause for celebration. At the same time, this has resulted in the death of many Israelites, the people of God, including his own son. And so that would be very bitter for David. So who knows how he's going to react? Then Job said to a Cushite, who is an Egyptian, Go and tell the king what you have seen. And after bowing to Job, the Cushite ran off. And Ahai Maaz, the son of Zadok, again spoke to Job, Whatever happens, let me go after the Cushite. But Job said, Why is it that you want to go to my son? You have no good news that will bring you a reward. But he said, Whatever happens, I want to go. So Job said to him, Then go. Ahai Maaz ran by the way of the Jordan plain, and he passed the Cushite. He's really interested in telling David this. We have no idea what Job's motivation for preventing him to do this is. There's nothing in the scripture that implies anything of why Job is so adamant that he doesn't go. However, we might be able to assume that it's because he's not bringing good news. Twice Job has said, this is not good news. And the second time he has mentioned, there's no reward for you in this. Like, you're, there's, there's nothing beneficial. Perhaps the young son, who is not aware of what it's like to be a father and lose his son, in that kind of sense, <clears throat> has no idea what he's really bringing. But what he thinks is like, this is really great, and I want to be the one to tell David. What Job's thinking is, sometimes messengers die when they give kings bad news. And perhaps he's protecting him from how David will react to him, where... This doesn't make it right, but it is a historical fact. The Cushite, a foreigner, the Egyptian, he probably doesn't value his life as much. And he's sending him instead. But because the boy keeps pressing on more and more, he finally just lets him go. Perhaps Job is hoping the Cushite will get there before him, and maybe he'll reap the butt of the sword, so to speak, rather than Ahai Ma'as. That would be our guess, but we're not completely sure. Verse 24. Now David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate at the wall. And when he looked, he saw a man running by himself. So the watchman called out and informed the king. And the king said, If he is by himself, he brings good news. The runner came ever closer. Oh, he's going to be so disappointed. Then the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called out to the gatekeeper. There is another man running by himself. The king said, This one is bringing good news. 
The watchman said, It ha- appears to me that the first runner is a high Amaaz, son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man, and he comes with good news. Now, what in the world is making David assume that? I have no idea. Then Ahimaaz called out and said to the king, Greetings. He bowed down before the king with his face toward the ground and said, May Yahweh your God be praised because he has defeated the men who opposed my lord the king. The king replied, How is the young man Absalom? You know where David's real focus is. The minute he's told the good news of the defeat and the end of a civil war, you would expect David to say, Oh, thank God. That's all over with. But he doesn't even respond to that. His immediate response is, how's my son? And that shows you what he's been concerned. So the last thing he said to the army when they left is, take care of my son. The first thing he says when people come back is, how's my son? This puts Joab's actions in a greater dark element, a perspective, in David's eyes. Ahimaaz replied, I saw a great deal of confusion when Joab was sending the king's servant to me. Your servant, but I don't know what it is all about. The king said, Turn aside and take your place here. So he turned aside and waited. So Ahimaaz doesn't really seem to know what has happened to the son. Then the Cushite arrived and said, May my lord the king now receive the good news. Yahweh has vindicated you today and delivered you from the land of all that have rebelled against you. The king asked the Cushite, How is the young man Absalom? And the Cushite replied, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who have plotted against you be just like that young man. Meaning he's dead. Now what ding-dong doesn't know how to couch the news of your son's, of man's son's death in a better light? Yes, he was rebellious. Yes, he was the enemy. Yes, he's the reason for all this stuff, but it's still his son. Like, find a better way to say it. Verse 33, The king then became very upset, and he went up to the upper room of the gate and wept. And he went and he said, My son Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I could have died in your place, Absalom, my son, my son. In some sense, David's perspective is wrong. This is a rebellious son. And David's inability to deal with this kid has led to lots and lots and lots of bloodshed in the nation of God's people. But in another sense, David has every right to respond this way. And there's total sympathy for someone like this, because even though his son should be killed and be executed, I personally have no idea what it's like to lose a son or or a daughter in any kind of a way, let alone to lose it knowing that they've completely walked away from God, rebelled against God, should be punished by God by death under law because of their sins, caused a hole in civil war, knowing that I'm guilty for the fact that the son became that way, and all the emotions that are wrapped up in that. And so there's this almost, there's a, a sympathy for David, but at the same time, like, you should have dealt with this a long time ago. If you would have just dealt with this a long time ago, you would have never been here. Chapter 19, verse 1. Job was told the king is weeping and mourning over Absalom. So the victory that day was was turned to mourning as far as all the people were concerned. For the people heard on that day the king is grieved over his son. And the day the people stole away to go to the city, the way people who are embarrassed 
steal away and fleeing from the battle. And the king covered his face and cried out loudly, My son Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. So David is mourning and mourning and mourning for a long period of time. And the people don't know what to do with this. In some ways, they're incredibly happy and are expecting a huge political national celebration at the end of the war. But at the same time, the king is mourning and crying and grieving at the end of like a great victory. And it says that they're walking away like people are embarrassed. It's so awkward, they don't know what to do. And they're embarrassed either for David or they're embarrassed and they, I'm awkward and I don't know how to respond to this. They have completely left David alone in isolation and David continues to mourn. Verse 5, So Joab visited the king at his home and he said, Today you have embarrassed all your servants who have saved your life this day as well as the life of your sons and your daughters, your wives and your concubines. You seem to love your enemies and hate your friends, for you have as much as declared today that leaders and your servants don't matter to you. I realize now that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, it would be all right with you. That is harsh. Once again, like, this is a difficult issue. In some ways, Job is right. In some ways, to everybody in the nation, it looks like David is mourning the loss of an enemy. Other ways, he's wrong, because there's a total lack of sympathy. This is still David's son. He has every right to mourn it. Even when we are incredibly rebellious against God, and we're crucifying Jesus on the cross and celebrating it, Jesus is mourning his children. And he's, he's willing to forgive them. And he's even calling out, Oh, Israel, I long to bring you back to me. David has every right to his emotions. There should be a sympathy here. And anybody in the nation should understand this. The majority of the people have children. But in the other sense is, you know how it is. Politically speaking, for those who are governmental leaders, the everyday normal people in a nation have very little compassion for the personal lives of a leader. All they see is what you're supposed to be as a national leader and what you're supposed to be to me. And there's very little sympathy in the media and from most people what's going on in the personal lives of political leaders. In some ways, David is not just a father. He's more than a father. He's a king. And he is to represent the nation. And he's also to represent the law of God. The message is very confusing. In some ways, David should find a better way to mourn because that's just the crappiness of being a political leader. This is a very muddied water. But we also know that Job has never, ever, ever been good with words or sympathy or compassion in any kind of way. Even though he may be right, there are better ways to say this. Verse 7, So get up now and go out and give some encouragement to your servants. For I swear by Yahweh that if you don't go out there, not a single man will stay here with you tonight. This disaster will be worse for you than any disaster that is overtaking you from your youth right to the present time. Don't lose the kingdom now like this after a great victory in a civil war. So the king got up and sat at the city gate. And when all the people were informed that the king was sitting at the city gate, they all came before him. But... The Israelite soldiers who had all fled to their own homes. Everybody in Judah gathers to David 
except for the ten tribes in the north. So even though the battle has been won, what is interesting is that the first time that David comes into Israel as the new king after his civil war with, De, um, with Saul's son, Ishbosheth, the Israelites are like, oh, we're with you, we're with you, even when we were just fighting against you. Now he's come and ending this civil war, and the Israelites are not with him. This is one too many times in their eyes. This is one too many times that David has failed in their eyes. All the people of the tribes of Israel were arguing among themselves, saying that the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He rescued us from the hand of the Philistines, but now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, whom he, we anointed as our king, has died in the battle. So now why do you hesitate to bring the king back? You get this sense that Israel is confused. Because in one sense, they've sided with Absalom because they don't like David. And they don't want David to be king. But in another sense, David has defeated Absalom and is the rightful king, both chosen by God and being the victor in battle, and has been their king in the past, and has delivered them. They're like, well, that's the reality of what we have to face with, so, but why don't you bring him back then? It's kind of like, I voted Republican or Democratic, and I did not vote for the opposing party, I don't want them to be president, but the fact is they won and they're president, so get them in the office and start making them do their job. And that's kind of the idea that you get the sense here is we don't really want to be here, but there are no other options right now, so why are you delaying his return to office? Because we've got to get this nation back together again. And there's huge problems. All this seems to suggest that David's dragging his feet. David's dragging his feet. Just like... The last time. When God burned down his home in Ziklag and was like, get back, get back, get back. And David just drags his feet and stays there and stays there. And next thing we know, Ishbosheth is making himself king and causing lots of problems. And that's very important to understand. Verse 11. Then King David sent a message to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, saying, Tell the elders of Judah, why should you delay any further in bringing the king back to his palace? When everything Israel is saying has come to the king's attention, you are my brothers, my very own flesh and blood. Why should you delay any further in bringing the king back? Say to Amasa, are you not my flesh and blood? God will punish me be severely if from this time on you are not the commander of my army in the place of Joab. Now David, they, in some sense, Israel is jockeying for power to bring David back. And Judah's jockeying for power to bring David back. Israel has made it very clear they don't really want David as king. They didn't vote for him in the war, so to speak. But he is king as a result of the war, so they want to bring him back because that will give them clout. We just rebelled against David, but if we bring him back and roll out the carpet for him and take care of all of his supplies as it comes back, maybe he'll overlook that and we'll still be buddy-buddy him in a political sense. So I'll stab you in the back and betray you and lobbying and all those campaigns and that kind of stuff, and I'll trash talk you in my commercials and all that kind of stuff, but when you gain power, then I'm going to totally suck up because I want a place in the cabinet. And that's basically what they're doing. Judah basically is saying, we've been with you all along, and we're still with you. We're going to bring you back. David tries a compromise. In some ways, he lowers Israel down by refusing to let them bring him back into Jerusalem. He disses them to a certain extent. But Amasa 
remember, was the general of Absalom, his army against David. And Amasa is also one of his other nephews. He decides to appoint Amasa as his general. And so Amasa represented the north as a general. So David's allowing Judah to bring him back politically. You can be my cabinet. But Amasa from the north, the other party in the politics that didn't get voted in, he's going to make him the general of his army. And so he's trying to politically play both sides, so to speak. Keep everybody happy because he knows that he's in a very dangerous place politically when it comes to the hearts of the people and it's all his fault for not dealing with this correctly. In some ways, Amas is a good choice politically because he was the general of the north and you're trying to appease that power. And he's also a good choice because he's the nephew. But he's also a good choice because notice that David said, I don't want Joab as my general anymore. Now we have finally realized how David's going to deal with Joab. He's still not punishing Joab. What Job did to Absalom was blatant murder now. And where David allowed Joab to still live after he killed Abner and after he killed other people, that was blatant murder, but at the same time it benefited David politically. Now Job has done blatant murder, but it's not just blatant murder of some guy, now it's blatant murder of his own son. And on top of that, it has not benefited him politically in any kind of a way. And he's put David in a dangerous place politically with the north. By appointing Amasa, he's appeasing the north in that loss, but also shows that David's still not dealing with Joab. Job should be prosecuted for murder and punished for murder. And he should be doing that not only because the law demands that, but he should be doing that as a sign to Israel that he, the north, he is a just king. But he doesn't. Instead, he demotes him. And he takes another general and makes him the general, another man, Amasa, makes him general, and puts Joab as second command under Amasa. Now, what makes this even worse in the way that David is dealing with this is this is so passive-aggressive. This is like breaking up with your boyfriend or girlfriend but not telling them. And then going off and finding another boyfriend or girlfriend and starting to date them. And that previous one finds out about it when they see you at the restaurant with this new person. And they go up to you and you're like, what the heck? And you're like, well, I broke up with you. Thanks for telling me, but we can still be friends. <laughs> That's what he's basically doing with Joab. Well, I'm breaking up with you and I'm going to make a moss of the new general. But you're still part of my army. Job is going to find out through other means. This is so passive-aggressive. In this sense, David is showing that he really does fear Joah. And he doesn't really want to face off with Joah. Now, part of it could be that David may... Now, there's still a possibility that he still doesn't really completely fear Joab. But maybe he realizes he can't deal with Joab because he's the one that's allowed Joab to last this long. Job has gained power because David has allowed him to gain power. David has conveniently left, kept the bloody hands of Job around. So David wouldn't have bloody hands himself. And David now realizes probably that even though he should get rid of Job and has every reason to get Job, he can't because this would make him look really hypocritical. 
and really bad. And it would show that it's just politically convenient for him. And that's exactly what it is. It's always been politically convenient to have Job around, and now it's not, but he can't really totally ax Job in the way that he should because everybody knows that David has kept him around for a long time. And it would be so obvious. And right now he's playing a very dangerous game of politics to keep everybody happy. And remember, Joab is also a Judaite. And that would anger Joab, it would anger Abishai, and anger everybody else. And then all of a sudden that might spread to Judah. And as he's trying to gain the approval of north, he's losing the south. He is playing politics. Because the minute he's about ready to die, and Solomon's sons come to power, he'll say, kill him. You don't have to play the politics game anymore. This doesn't apply to you. You are a brand new, fresh start. And nobody will hold anything against you. And that right there says, that's all politics. But Joe, meanwhile, is finding out through Facebook, rather than being told face to face. The minute he makes Amasa the king, it says in verse 14, he won over the hearts of all the men of Judah as though they had were one man. Then they went to the word of the king, saying, Return you and all your servants as well. So the king returned and came to the Jordan River. Now the people of Judah had come to Gilgah to meet the king and to help him cross the Jordan. Shimei, son of Gerah, the Benjamite from Baharim, came down quickly with the men of Judah to keep David, to meet David. There were a thousand men or regiment before, from Benjamin with him, along with Ziba, the servant at Saul's household, and with him as his fifteen sons and twenty servants. They hurriedly crossed the Jordan within the sight of the king, and they crossed at the fort in order to help the king's household cross and do whatever he thought appropriate. So two groups of people show up. Ziba, or Shimi, first. Shimi is the guy who's throwing rocks at him. I'm a Benjamite, I like Saul, you deserve this. When he was leaving Jerusalem. The second guy is Ziba, who lied about Mephibosheth betraying David and not take, being willing to be with him, and was his servant. Now after he had crossed the Jordan, Shimei, son of Gur, threw himself down before the king, and he said to the king, Don't think badly of me, my lord, and don't recall the sin of your servant on the day when you and my lord the king left Jerusalem. Please don't call it to mind. I thought you were going to totally die and lose the battle when I was throwing rocks at you, and now you haven't. So please just forget about all that. I'll do anything. For I, your servant, know that I sinned, and I have come today, come today as the first of all the house of Joseph to come down to meet my lord, the king. So he's like, I'm the first one here to welcome you back. See? Abishai, son of Zerai, replied, This should not Shimei be put to death. After all, he cursed Yahweh's anointed. Now, once again, Abishai's response is, Kill him! You're in power again. You don't have to be merciful anymore. Kill him! But David said, What do we have in common, you sons of Zariah? You are like my enemy today. Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't you realize that today I am king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You won't die. The king vowed an oath concerning this. So basically, David turns on Abishai and says, We have nothing in common. You are my adversary. And you're always contrary to who I am when it comes to things like this. He's had it up to here with Joab and his brother. But he's not demoting Abishai. He says, I'm going to let Shimei live. 
At first you're like, wow, David, that's really merciful and forgiving. Until when he's on his deathbed with Solomon, he basically says to Solomon, kill Shimei. Now why? Because Shimei is a Benjamite. And David is doing everything in his power to keep the north together and to keep the north with him. And he is the new political party in power and the Benjamites represent the old party. And he desperately, if there was ever a time that he needs their support and he cannot anger them, it's right now. And so he will do that. But once Shimei becomes old and David becomes old and most people don't really remember who he is, then it's time to kill him. And Solomon can do that without any caution. So all this is politics. And that's what the narrator wants you to know. Nothing here is about right and wrong according to the law. Everything here is about playing a game of politics to keep everything together. This is all political convenience. Now, once again, some people say, yeah, but you do have to play the game if you're going to be in politics. That's just the way the world works. To a certain extent, like, yeah, I guess I've never been in that world to really be able to say anything. But at the same time, oh, how many books of the Bible, all of them, have made it very clear that you are not to be like all the other nations. You're not to operate like them. You're not to play the games like them. You are to do what the law says. And Yahweh will take care of you and bless you. And we have seen the people of Israel going against the great power of Egypt. And Moses refused to play the game. And God protected him and blessed him. We've seen Joshua go up great armies and refuse to play the game. And God's protected him, taking care of him. We've seen David even refuse to play the game at different times of his life and God take care of him. And the idea is, do you really believe the need to play the game is superior to your trust in Yahweh? Or do you believe that your trust in Yahweh as the God of the universe that can make anything happen and direct the paths of anybody is superior to playing the game? And that's what it really comes down to. Verse 24. Now Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, came down to meet the king from the day the king had left until the day he had safely returned. Mephibosheth had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes. The idea is the entire time that David was away from the palace, Mephibosheth had let himself go completely. If David wasn't there in the comfort of the palace ruling, then Mephibosheth wasn't going to take care of himself. This shows his allegiance to David and the best way that he can show it as a cripple who could not help him fight the battle. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He replied, My lord, the king, my servant, deceived me. I said, Let me get my donkey saddled so that I can ride on it and go with the king, for I am lame. But my servant has slandered me to the lord, the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do whatever seems appropriate to you. After all, there was no one in the entire house of my grandfather who did not deserve death from my lord the king. But instead you allow me to eat at your own table. What further claim do I have to ask the king for anything? He says, I know my entire house is guilty of sins and rebellion. They should be judged and you spared me. So the life that I've had all these years is more than what I've deserved. So do what you think is right. But I never betrayed you. I never betrayed you. And the king replied to him, Why should you continue speaking like this? You and Ziba will inherit the field together. Mephibosheth to the king said to the king, Let him have the whole thing. 
and my lord the king has returned safely to his house. So David basically says, Ziba's telling me one thing, you're telling me another thing. I'm just going to split the inheritance between the two of you. Now, to this extent, you're like, come on, David. The guy has a really good excuse. This guy's not playing the game. This guy's not playing the game. He is a crippled. He could not make it. Ziba's already shown himself untrustworthy in the past. He intentionally seized the lands that belonged to um, Mephibosheth from him because he was a cripple. And the only reason he got it back was because you gave it to him. You put him at your table. You've had a relationship with him. You've been with him day after day after day as you've eaten meals. He's let himself go completely in a time period in a culture where that's a huge no-no, a culturally taboo speaking in appearance. And he's got a really good excuse. And he basically says, and even in the end, he says, let him have everything. I just want to be with you. Now, what's interesting here is probably what's going on in here is David is so much playing the political game and trying to compromise with every single person that comes with him. He's just in compromise mode. He's got to appease this side and that side, this side and that side. And all of them are having bad, selfish, ulterior motives. And he can't figure out whose motives are genuine and how he should play to them. So he's playing the game. And now he comes to a close friend who has never played the political game with him. Has always been exactly who he's portrayed himself to be and has no advantage at all to play the game. And David still goes into political compromise playing the game with him. And this says something about the dangers of the games that David is playing. That he has lived in this political world for so long that he doesn't really even know who to trust anymore. And that's sad. And that's one of the other reasons I would never want to be in politics. Or be a celebrity. You have no idea who really is true to you and loyal. In the same sense, too, David is just playing the game with everybody and now it's affecting true, genuine friends. And now Mephibosheth, the only authentic thing in David's life that we've seen so far, is getting thrown under the political bus with everybody else. And this is the danger of the world that David has built around him. He built a political machine. And now the machine is devouring everything. And he's lost control of it. And there is something to what God said in the deregulations for the Deuteronomy King. Don't collect this and don't collect that and don't collect this and don't build a machine and make sure that you never do anything that makes yourself more powerful or politically higher than anybody else. So you're just right there with everybody else as a fellow brother in the community of God doing the best you can to serve God and represent him. And David built a machine and now the machine is destroying everything. All of this is his fault. And I don't mean that every little thing that has happened is fault, but the that the world that he created is his fault, has produced the results of all this kind of stuff. And this is what the narrator is trying to show you here. Verse 31. Now when Barzillia the Gileite had come down from the Rogalim, he crossed the Jordan with the king so that he could send him on his way from there. Now Barzillia, remember, was the guy that when David finally made it across the Jordan earlier, and he went up into the north of Gilead, um, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Barzilli was an older guy 
who brought him all this clothing and food and shelter and said, I'll take care of you because I know you're on the run and, and you have nothing. So he took care of him. This is the, one of the only other guys that is, was really genuine to David and had no ulterior motives. But Barzillia was very old, 80 years old, in fact, and he had taken care of the king when he stayed in Mahanaim, for he was a very rich man. So the king said to Barzillai, Cross over with me, and I will take care of you while you are with me in Jerusalem. So David goes into politics mode. Come with me. I'll bring you back to the palace. I'll put you in my cabinet. I'll give you a great house, great power position. I'll take care of you. I'm going to reward you politically with lots of political power and wealth. Barzillai replied to the king, How many days do I have left in my life? that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem. I am presently 80 years old. Am I able to discern good and bad? Can I taste what I eat and drink? I, am I still able to hear the voice of a male and female singers? Why should I continue to be burdened to my lord, the king? So I will, I will cross the Jordan with the king and go a short distance. Why should the king reward me this way? Let me return so that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But look, here is your servant, Kenham. Let him cross over with my lord, the king. Do for him what seems appropriate to you. And Barzillia's response is, I'm getting too old for all this stuff. <laughs> I don't really care about that anymore. I've come to a point in my life where that doesn't matter to me anymore. I don't want to play that game anymore. I don't really need that wealth. God has rewarded me. I have wealth. I have a nice home. I'd rather just stay in my home with my family, die with my family, and be buried with my family. And that is a huge contrast to David right now. And what the narrator is showing you here is now Mephibosheth has gotten rolled over by David putting his priorities in the wrong place. And this older man, Barzillia, who's old and experienced and wise, is just like, I don't want that world, David. I want my family. I just, that's all I want. I just want my family. And there's a huge, powerful lesson in this. Because in the end, when we get to the book of Kings, David's just going to be another used-up old man. And I don't mean that in a horribly negative way. Lying in a bed, not able to keep himself warm, and all that politics has really achieved nothing. And when he's dying, his entire family is going to care nothing about his death in any kind of way. And they're all going to be playing the game of politics to try, try to take the throne. And that's going to be his legacy. He's going to die as an old man alone in a bedroom while everybody outside of them in a world completely separated from him now is playing the game of politics. And Barzillia, meanwhile, is going to be with his family in a college, cottage. And he's going to die in peace with those who he loved and be buried with his family. There's a huge contrast there. But Barzillia says, you can take my servant. Maybe his servant really wants that life. <laughs> and Barzillia says, go take him. Verse 38, the king replied, the kingdom will cross over with me, and I will do for him whatever I deem appropriate. And whatever you choose, I will do for him. You. 
So all the people crossed the Jordan as did the king. And after the king had kissed him and blessed him, Barzillai returned to his home. And when the king crossed over to Gilgah, Kinnaham crossed over with him. And now all the soldiers of Judah, along with half of the soldiers of Israel, had helped the king cross over. Then all the men of Israel began to continue, began to, um, began coming to the king. And they asked the king, why did our brothers, the men of Judah, sneak the king away and help the king and his household cross the Jordan? And not only him, but all of David's men as well. Do you guys do this behind our back? The tribes of the north were like, Judah got to take you in. You did this behind our back. We weren't there. Why didn't you invite us to the party? Welcome to the game of politics. All the men of Judah replied to the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. We're his favorites. We're related to him. You're not. This is so immature. Why are you so upset about this? Have we eaten at the king's expense, or have we misappropriated anything for you at our own use? Then the men of Israel replied to the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and we have a greater claim to David than you do. Why do you want to curse us? Weren't we the first to suggest bringing back our king? But the comments of the men of Judah were more severe than those of the men. Yeah, but there's ten of us and only one of you. And we're more the people of God because there's ten of us than you are. And it was our idea to bring him back. You would have just kept dragging your feet. What the heck? This is like little children. But the king comments of Judah were more severe. The nation is broken. That's the background. The background is David is playing this game of politics, trying to appease all these sides. Israel doesn't really like David. And Absalom has shown that they really don't like David. They're kind of happy to have David now because David appointed Amasa as a general and they like that. They're jockeying for power and trying to be his friends so that they can just have power and that's it. Because they realize they might lose it because they went against David. Meanwhile, David's dragging his feet and not going back to Jerusalem like he's supposed to, just like he did previous with Saul's dead, death. Now remember all that politics with Philistines and refusing to go back to Israel like he was supposed to led to Ishbosheth becoming king. Now David is playing all these politics with Israel and dragging his feet going back to where he's supposed to in the land. And what's going to happen now? Sheba is going to take advantage of this, just like Ishbosheth did. History is repeating itself because David refused to learn from his previous mistakes.